Welcome to our Nerd Roamer series on the Gnome Serum Run of 1925. For the rest of the episodes in this series, please see nerdroamer.com or find Nerd Roamer on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all your Nerd Roamer-related updates and news, find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Nerd Roamer. Hello and welcome to Nerd Roamer. This is your host, The Cross, coming to you after a couple month hiatus. We're still the podcast that tries to make the world around you come alive. We cover history, science, and cultural topics that help turn every time you leave the house into a field trip. You can check out nerdroamer.com for show notes and bonus content for each episode, and find us on Instagram and Twitter for all things Nerd Roamer related. Learn more about the world you explore with Nerd Roamer. Roam wisely. I do have to offer a brief apology for the two-month hiatus. I am a physician that works at one of the hospitals in the city where I live, and as you can imagine, things have been a little bit busy. In addition to this, we had the bright idea of deciding that now would be a good time to adopt a new puppy, and let's just say that our house has not been the quietest place in the world for recording podcasts. So if you hear some barking in the background, consider it ambient noise thematically designed for this episode, but it's probably just my puppy losing it while we're still trying to work on crate training and house training and that kind of thing. Bear with me, please. In light of all of the above facts, for this very special series of episodes that we are about to start today, I wanted to bring everything together for you and really make it thematic. So this episode has got it all. Everything that's going on in our lives right now, especially my life. We're tying together epidemic disease, doggies, antibodies, logistical rollout of epidemic responses, and winter, because it is January right now. The last month has offered the world some extremely remarkable sights, things like we've never seen before. We've seen images of vaccines against COVID-19, from various you know, pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer and Moderna and others get loaded onto trucks and airplanes and shuttled around the world at record speed in a race against the clock to fight this extremely tricky virus that's going on right now. The technology developed by the hardworking scientists to make this possible basically didn't exist one year ago, and it, this kind of rollout is unlike anything we've ever really witnessed in human history. However, as I was watching this rollout happen, the pictures of people standing on the street corners and cheering the trucks going past with the uh, first doses of the vaccine did bring to mind another deadly epidemic. And this race against the clock brought to mind this 1925 diphtheria epidemic in Nome and the famous Great Race of Mercy or Alaska Serum Run. So I figured that I would do a deep dive on this for you all just so that we could be familiar with this really awesome story that spawned multiple books, movies, cultural icons, statues, you name it. Really captivates the imagination. Some of you might be loosely familiar with the story for the same reason I was, courtesy of the 1995 animated film Balto. If you're unfamiliar with the film, you're not alone. It was one of the biggest box office flops of the 1990s, due to being crushed by a silly little film about toys that come to life made using this newfangled computer-generated imagery. But 
If you're a fan of playing Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon with our podcast, you are in luck because the actor voiced the titular character, Balto. One degree of Kevin Bacon. Maybe even zero degrees of Kevin Bacon. Maybe I'm one degrees of Kevin Bacon now. I don't exactly know how the degrees works, but we're in Kevin Bacon territory. Balto in the film was portrayed as a wolf hybrid street dog type thing who proves his worth by basically single-handedly bum-rushing this diphtheria medication across the Alaskan wilderness to save children dying from a diphtheria epidemic in Nome. The narrative echoes that reported by some of the media of the time. These reports at one point made Balto the most famous dog in all of America and garnered widespread acclaim. In actuality, though, the real story is much more complicated, as it often is. Balto may not even be the most impressive dog, although I'm sure that he was a very good boy. In order to get to the bottom of this, we're going to need to travel back in time. So grab yourself a warm blanket and a cup of hot cocoa, because winter has set in in Nome, Alaska in 1924, and things are about to get very desperate indeed. First, a little geography. Nome sits near the coast of the Bering Sea on the Seward Peninsula, which is like that little knob of land that juts off the west coast of Alaska. If Alaska looks like the mitten of Michigan turned on its side, the Seward Peninsula is kind of like the thumb. It sits approximately on the Arctic Circle, meaning that in the summer, the longest days in Nome can be super, super long, reaching 21 hours in length. And in the winter, the days can be as short as three hours. As one would expect, the weather gets quite cold in the winter. There's an average high of 13 degrees Fahrenheit, which is negative 10 Celsius for those of you listening in uh, basically any country except for the United States and an average low of 3 degrees Fahrenheit below zero, or negative 20 Celsius. The coldest temperature ever recorded was 54 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, or 48 below zero Celsius. Nome experiences snowfall on more than one in six days in the average year. Not in the average winter, in the average year. One in six days of the entire year sees snowfall. Nome exploded into existence out of nothing at the dawn of the 20th century. Gold was discovered in a nearby creek in 1898, and within a couple years, the city had blossomed to around 20,000 people. Nome was popular because it featured, quote-unquote, these placer claims for gold mining, meaning that relatively unskilled workers stood a chance of coming in and panning or sluicing for these gold nuggets without needing to chisel gold out of what were called like the load claims, which is uh, where the gold is embedded in a rock. It requires much more equipment. One of the things that really made the Nome Gold Rush unique is that Nome is situated right on the ocean, and a lot of the best placer mining for gold nuggets could be done directly on the beach, where you could basically find the gold nuggets at the beginning of the gold rush, at least, just kind of laying around. It was very easy pickings. Tent villages and shanty towns lined the Bering Sea coast for miles during each brief summer. After the easy gold had been extracted, the more difficult, deeper gold deposits that remained wound up requiring increasingly intensive industrial machinery, and at that point, the gold rush town kind of began to dwindle after a few years. By 1908, Alaska had started to move on to its next gold rush on the Iditarod River, which was more in the interior of Alaska. Unlike Nome, which is on the coast and is 
you know, basically easiest access by boat during the summer, Iditarod required overland travel to access. When the U.S. incorporated the Alaska Territory, the United States government wanted to develop some sort of official trail for accessing this area in order to facilitate mail delivery, shipping out the gold, etc. A group of surveyors worked to link together some existing trails, many of which had been there for generations and had been used by Alaskan natives, in order to create one long continuous trail that could link Iditarod to the deep water port of Seward, Alaska, which was on the Kenai Peninsula and remained ice-free year-round. At this time, the town of Anchorage didn't exist and there was no railroad, there were no airplanes, so the Iditarod Trail enabled Iditarod to be in business basically year-round for mining in a way that some of the other mining areas that relied on boat travel weren't able to be. By the year 1924, Nome did still house one to 2,000 people at any given moment. There was one doctor who lived in the town. His name was Curtis Welch. He was a graduate of Yale and had served the entire city and the outlying Alaska native populations since 1906. As winter began to set in in 1924, Dr. Welch cared for several pediatric patients with sore throats. Initially, he didn't think too much of it. Tonsillitis, strep throat, and just plain old viral pharyngitis are very, very common, especially in the winter months. Anyone who's had children or worked in pediatrics or been around kids knows that kids just get boogers all the time, especially in the winter. They're just boogery little beasts. But as the number of cases started growing and growing, children started dying. Not what one would expect from a typical viral sore throat. Ominous indeed. By the time the new year had dawned and Dr. Welch had had time to examine the cases of the patients who died, it had become clear to him that a diphtheria epidemic had set in. Diphtheria. Diphtheria was one of the most feared pestilences of the pre-vaccine, pre-antibiotic era. Affecting children to a greater extent than adults. Adults can still carry it, they can get infected, but they generally don't have as severe a disease as children, at least until they get, you know, to be more elderly and frail. In pediatric populations, at the time it could carry a risk of death approaching uh, 30-40% in very young children. It was even more infectious than influenza or the common cold, and it could spread rapidly through any close-knit neighborhood or school. You could have a large number of grieving parents in a very short time secondary to diphtheria. Diphtheria is caused by a bacteria called Carinobacterium diphtheriae. It's a comma-shaped, hard-shelled, tough little bacteria. In its native state, the garden variety benign strain of Crinobacterium uh, actually is like very wimpy. It does not cause severe disease in children. But the pathogenic, virulent, dangerous strains of Crinobacterium is very interesting. The virulent strains have been infected by a virus that infects bacteria. This type of virus is called a phage or bacteriophage. These bacteriophages at one point transmitted a gene for a toxin into the bacteria that is now integrated into this pathogenic strain, making them extremely lethal. The toxin secreted by Carinobacterium shuts down the ability of the human cells to make proteins, and these cells need to make proteins in order to function and stay alive. So basically, it, it's a cell killer. It's a human cell killer. 
The toxin first acts locally in the respiratory tract where the crinobacterium is that's in your throat, in your mouth, before it winds up being absorbed into the bloodstream and then it can affect other organs in the body. The first symptoms that diphtheria causes are very similar to upper respiratory tract infections that you might be familiar with, like colds and that kind of thing. So you get some sore throat, fevers, you know, the lymph nodes in your neck can feel really swollen, stuff like that. However, diphtheria quickly winds up distinguishing itself due to the effects of this toxin, which is very different from anything else you would get from these other things that can cause upper respiratory tract infection. So first, the tissue in the throat begins to die and kind of slough off, and patients can accumulate sheets or clumps of these dead cells that form membranes in their throats or in, their, in the back of their mouth. If the infection is most severe in the patient's larynx, which is kind of the lower throat, uh, you know, kind of, you can think of it as kind of the beginning of the windpipe there, um, those clumps of cells can actually obstruct the airway and lead to asphyxiation. The cause of death for most patients, though, that wind up dying from this is when the toxin gets absorbed into the bloodstream and it begins to poison the cells of various organs throughout the body, particularly in the heart, which leads to heart failure, uh, arrhythmias, cardiac arrest, and death. This toxin is super duper potent. You Just micrograms are enough to kill even an adult human. So you can imagine the tiny, tiny amounts that are needed to be fatal for a pediatric patient. The interesting thing with coronibacterium that's relevant for this time period is that the deadly effect of the diphtheria, as we mentioned, is not necessarily from inflammation directly caused by the bacteria, which would be the case for, you know, a lot of other bacterial infections uh, that you can die from. The real bugaboo here is the effect of the toxin that it secretes. So protection against the bacteria can be obtained just by blocking the action of the toxin, as this will give the body a chance to fight off the bacteria on its own, and basically like re-wimpify the bacteria. This is significant for the time frame that we're talking about because, remember, in the year 1925, the world is still three years away from Alexander Fleming uh, going on vacation and then coming back to find that the penicillium mold had contaminated his bacterial collection and had caused his bacteria to die, uh, thus discovering the first antibiotic, uh, penicillin. There were no antibiotics in use in 1925. Three years away from discovering penicillin, we were really like 20 years away from the widespread availability of antibiotics. So we're still very much in the pre-antibiotic era here. Fortunately for those affected by diphtheria, the world had developed treatments directed at the toxin, and these were widely available, even before antibiotics had been discovered. In the 1890s, German physician Emil Bering and his associates did uh, some experiments in which they injected the this. Science in the 1800s sounds so fun. I mean, really, you just had to have, like, money and, uh, you know, maybe access to a few goodies. And you could just go around taking different compounds and injecting it into different creatures. And it, it's just the Wild West here. So anyways, Emil Bering and some of his lab associates wind up doing these experiments where they take the diphtheria toxins and they inject them into various animals, especially horses are, are the most uh, significant here. They would then go back and they would draw blood from these creatures that survived injecting the toxin. They would do very, you know, very non-lethal small amounts. And they were able to find that the serum from the horses was able to neutralize the diphtheria toxin. 
Nowadays, we know that this is mediated by these antibody compounds that are secreted by some of your white blood cells. But at the time, it was just very apparent that this serum from the horses was an absolute game changer. By 1901, Emil Bering had been awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine. And if you're ever interested, if you're in Europe, you can go see his Nobel Prize for this at the International Red Cross Museum in Geneva, Switzerland. In fact, this treatment was so effective that antitoxin made in a similar way, equine antitoxin, is still used for the treatment of diphtheria during the rare outbreaks that the world can see these days. Due to the rarity of the condition, uh, it now has to be obtained from a central authority like the CDC or the WHO. You know, we have antibiotics now, so we also combine that treatment with administering some antibiotics. But with adequate treatment, diphtheria is still dangerous, but much more survivable than it was in the past. Mortality rates for children are now down to around 10% or less, which is still definitely, especially in a population of children, which is still nothing to sneeze at, but it's much better than the risk of death we saw when people were untreated. The number of cases of diphtheria in the United States peaked at over 200,000 in the 1920s. So this time period that we're talking about, this outbreak in Nome, this is really the heyday of diphtheria epidemics in the United States. In the 1920s, vaccination programs commenced and really ramped up in popularity, and we saw rates of diphtheria decline thereafter. Currently, nowadays, in most years, there are no reported cases of diphtheria in the United States due to widespread vaccination through the DTaP vaccine in childhood, which also gives you some immunity to tetanus and whooping cough, pertussis, and then there are also boosters of diphtheria in the TD and Tdap vaccines that adults get. Immunization rates for diphtheria in the United States are pretty good, 95%, but not 100%. And those infectious disease doctors and public health officials do worry about anti-vaccination sentiment, dropping to a vaccination rate as modest as 85% with how infectious uh, diphtheria is, uh, could lead to a compromise of herd immunity and could lead to a resurgence in cases due to the fact that diphtheria is still out there in the world circulating, even if we've done a good job of controlling it here. Uh, there are usually around 5,000 cases or so a year globally, uh, with some large outbreaks in Eastern Europe in the 1990s uh, that totaled over 150,000 cases or so. And uh, even as recently as 2017, there was a big outbreak in Yemen in the Middle East that required kind of a coordinated public health response from international health agencies. Okay, so now that we've had our science bio break, uh, we can get back to gnomes. So you kind of understand a little bit what we're dealing with with diphtheria here. Very dangerous, had some treatments available back then, but still pretty scary. So understandably at this point, Curtis Welch, the doctor in Gnome, is freaking out. Curtis Welch has just determined that at the dawn of 1925, this tiny, isolated town of Nome, Alaska, where he's the only physician with maybe a couple dozen nurses, is experiencing the beginning of a diphtheria epidemic. Welch did what any self-respecting survivalist would do in that situation, and he turned to looking at what he had on hand. Rummaging through his supplies, he was able to locate the town's supply of diphtheria antitoxin. They did have some antitoxin on hand. He knew the antitoxin had expired, however, 
because he had placed an order earlier that year to have the state send him a new supply of the antitoxin. But because it takes so long for mail to get out of Nome and to the outside world, and then it takes so long to ship things from uh, places like Juno back to Nome, the public health officials were not able to ship Dr. Welch fresh antitoxin before they wound up getting closed off by the ice in the Bering Sea. So there was no access to Nome whatsoever, and they were cut off from the outside world before they were able to get their supply refreshed. So bummer. He's just got a little bit of expired antitoxin on hand. The amount that he had was 75,000 units. So uh, just to provide some context, this is only enough antitoxin to treat maybe like three to five patients. And if you have a really critically ill patient who's on the doorstep of death from diphtheria, they might need as much as 100,000 units. So even if the antitoxin he had were fresh and good, it would not have been enough to deal with the epidemic that was already brewing in the city. So he needed more antitoxin either way. The case that really started the panic of the diphtheria epidemic in Nome was the case of a boy named Billy Barnett. Uh, he was young. Uh, he became very sick and developed this kind of characteristic pharyngeal pseudomembrane that we had talked about before from the diphtheria. Dr. Welch had a decision to make that was very difficult. There was this potential for this kind of expired, potentially spoiled antitoxin to cause ill effects. Uh, and he was worried that perhaps giving this expired antitoxin to the boy might make things worse and hurt him. So... Dr. Welch decided to just provide him with kind of the best supportive care that he could and try to let the boy fight off the illness on his own. And this did not go very well, unfortunately, and Billy passed away the next day. Uh, around the same time, Dr. Welch was also brought a seven-year-old girl who was ill with uh, basically the same symptoms. With this rapid demise of Billy Barnett in the back of his head, Dr. Welch said, well... It looks like supportive care for these really sick patients is just not going to cut it. Uh, we're going to have to give this expired antitoxin the old college try. So he gives her about 8,000 units of the antitoxin he has on hand to see how it goes. And she unfortunately passes away within hours. It's now very apparent to Dr. Welch that he is absolutely powerless against the forces of illness that are gathering at his doorstep. So Dr. Welch calls a meeting with the mayor of the town, who also happened to be the chief editor of the town's newspaper. So talk about involvement between the media and politicians in these tiny towns. Uh, you got to wear a lot of hats. So we got the chief editor of the newspaper slash mayor uh, in the mix now. So they put their heads together to discuss what to do. And first they decide to place the entire city on a strict month-long quarantine. Because now we're all familiar with the many nuances of the word quarantine and the, you know, there's a lockdown and there's a quarantine and there's contact tracing, all this stuff. I tried to find details on what the quarantine entailed and I could not, I, I looked for hours. I could not find anything uh, really concrete there, but in any case, they put the town on quarantine. It's really the only public health measure that they've got. And by all accounts, it was quite strict. Uh, and at this point, Dr. Welch starts scrambling to get his hands on the only thing that he knows is going to be able to save the children of his city, additional supply of this fresh antitoxin. For the rest of the episodes in this series, 
Please see nerdroamer.com or find Nerdroamer on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all your Nerdroamer-related updates and news, find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Nerdroamer. <laughs>